Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 184th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Reese Harper. Reese is the founder and CEO of Dentist Advisors, an independent RIA based in Salt Lake City that oversees nearly $250 million of assets under management for more than 350 clients. What's unique about Reese, though, is that his advisory firm doesn't just have a deep niche in serving dentists, as the name of the firm implies, but that Reese has developed his own unique monthly financial planning process for serving clients and raised capital from outside investors to develop his own technology tools to implement it. In this podcast, we talk in depth about the elements financial planning process that Reese has created, how he boils down a client's financial planning situation into 12 key metrics to track, including their savings rate, their insurance coverage rate, and their personal burn rate. The systematized series of 12 monthly deliverables that Dentist Advisors produces for all of its clients each month, one for each of the 12 financial planning elements, the combination of Salesforce and Conga that Reese's firm has implemented to increasingly automate the production of their client deliverables, and why Reese thinks the future of financial planning is all about working with clients through an ongoing series of micro-interactions around their financial planning needs. We also talk about the business of Dentist Advisors itself, how Reese has been able to power the growth of the business with a successful podcast focused into his niche, the combination of AUM fees starting at 1.5% plus monthly subscription fees running from $200 to $700 a month that he charges for his comprehensive service, the ways the firm justifies its fees beyond the portfolio and even traditional financial planning with a focus on helping dentists lift their personal income and the value of their dental practices, and why Reese sees his firm's approach of charging a premium price for a premium service as sustainable in this modern era of robo-advisors and fee compression. And be certain to listen to the end, where Reese shares why he ultimately decided to raise capital by selling a portion of his advisory firm to outside investors, even though they were already growing successfully, the valuation and terms they were able to get by showing a strong business plan with a high growth rate, the challenges in growing an advisory firm quickly where clients are long-term profitable but short-term expensive to find and onboard, and why Reese isn't concerned about the fact that with the second recent round of investor capital to accelerate their growth further, he's diluted his own founder ownership below a controlling 50% majority. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Reese Harper. Welcome, Reese Harper, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it's so good to catch up again, man. I, I really appreciate you having me on. I am I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. You you have a story that I I frankly I've kind of followed from afar for a while and have been really excited to the point where you were willing to agree to come onto the podcast and actually share the really cool stuff that you are building as really to me kind of a financial planning firm, unlike virtually any other that I've seen that, you know, we talk a lot about like really building with a focused clientele, but you have owned a niche like few that I've seen and really trying to build your own unique value proposition around financial planning, but you have owned it like no one that I've seen. And even drilling down to, 
if you're this excited about your vision, like how do you do it and grow it faster? And I know you actually went out and got external investors and took on equity, not as the like, I know the, the high profile deals we see in the industry, like firm with $50 billion sells off portion of firm for yeah. $100 million sort of things, like not those yeah. capital transactions, like as essentially a financial planning startup saying, I got this vision and mission of what we can do for a particular clientele with a unique value proposition. Anybody want to put some money in to stake this and are now <laughs> rapidly growing this focused planning firm with outside capital and and executing getting it done. And it just that that to me, that's like a kind of a I feel like a quintessential story for say, is Silicon Valley tech startup and is so not what it looks like for anyone else in the advisor industry. So I'm just really excited to talk about what this journey has been for you of what you're building at your firm. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I, I, I'm hearing you say that. I'm reminded of how much has happened in the last few years and how far we've come. That wasn't anything I ever thought I would hear someone saying when I first started my business. You know, so it's it's pretty cool to kind of look back and just feel super grateful. You know, and I hope that we can share some ideas with people that, you know, that not everything I share is going to be applicable, obviously, to to everyone. And I sure hope that if anybody felt like I said something that they had a lot of questions about that they could reach out and clarify it, because, man, I, I just really want to help more people get better advice and influence the industry in a positive way. And uh, however we can make that happen, we we're trying to do that. So I guess to kick this off. Like, let's just kind of dive right in. Talk to us a little bit about the advisory firm that you've created and 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 what that business looks like today. I think as of now, I mean, for those of you who don't know, the company is called Dentist Advisors and our website at dentistadvisors.com, you can kind of see what we do, but we we work with dentists and specialists throughout the US. We have orthodontists and pediatric specialists, endodontists, you know, all the oral surgery, ortho specialties. We have all the specialty niches, but the general dentist population is the largest segment of the national dental market. There's a few hundred thousand dentists in the US. They're broken down into like practice owners, associates that work for practices, and then sort of entrepreneurial dentists that are in dental service organizations that are called DSOs. We kind of have a service mix that we've created that targets each demographic of the dental market, both from young students to D, you know, D1 to D4s to first year graduates to scratch starts to first year you know, acquisitions, all the way through very large organizations where we try to provide support to their associates and to the owners. We just really tried to stay focused and that's financial planning has been our core. You know, we kind of feel and have seen since we started, you know, the investment industry i feel like the the management or the trading maybe of securities is increasingly the cost is coming down a lot right as the the internet continues to provide more products for people to be able to trade securities the trading of securities just becomes cheaper and i don't want to say it's a complete commodity because i think it it's not really accounts are very large right but when it's small you know it it starts to become something that technology can do better than humans can do sometimes and so, but there's a lot of things that humans can do way better than computers can do. And humans can help people decide between choices in a really impactful, empathetic way that is much better than how computers make choices. 
And humans can help people take action in a really powerful way that they wouldn't be able to do without the accountability and support of another person. At least, you know, a lot of the market needs that decision and action support. So we tried to focus on how can we lower the cost of some of the parts of the financial planning process, the organized part of the process, the analyzed part of the process? How can we let technology automation sort of bring the cost of that part down? And then how can we continue to get compensated well for the decision and action part that we do really great as humans? Instead of looking at this as, you know, robo-advisor versus financial planners, it's more, you know, there's a place for computers and there's a place for humans. And you just want to make sure you're on the right side of that equation. And I think we've tried to build a firm that lets humans do what they're really good at and lets computers kind of be great at what they're good at. So talk to us a little bit more in practice about what this means. I mean, I think we all say like we do financial planning and we're, you know, we do more than just what a computer or a robo advisor is going to do. I know in practice, what you have structured around financial planning looks very different than what the, yeah. what the average advisor does with financial planning. So when you talk about this, like here's the value we add as humans doing financial planning over and above the, the computers doing that product stuff. Talk to us a little bit more about what, what that financial planning process looks like in practice. Well, we kind of split up our team into, we call it the Eagle's Nest, which is all of our associate financial advisors, our younger CFPs. The Eagle's Nest is usually like right out of school or a year in, a few years out. Maybe the the most senior person there is going to have a few years of maybe three to four years of financial planning experience at another RIA. They come in and they're in charge of all the onboarding. When we sign a client contract, we don't have like planning versus investing. We have like one thing you get with us. And we think financial planning and investment management are integrated. And so depending on the complexity level of the person, they they have a minimum fee they pay. And that fee can range anywhere from $195 a month to uh, most of our clients are at $495 a month. We have a very small segment at $795 a month. They're the most complex. They pay this monthly fee This monthly fee is the minimum amount of revenue required for us to be able to do our process at the level of complexity of the customer. And the Eagle's Nest onboards the customer, gets a limited power of attorney signed by the client to be able to run point between their CPA and attorney, bookkeeper, their insurance agents, their office manager, their spouse. Interesting. You you actually have clients sign an L, like not the LPOA for like trading on a custodial platform for portfolio management, like an LPOA, just authorizing them up front, or I guess authorizing the firm up front to talk to their CPA, to talk to their bookkeeper, because if they're a dental practice, then someone is keeping the books of the the dental firm, their office manager, they are even their spouse. So hopefully they can work that spouse permission out directly. But for the rest, like... (laughs) Yeah, it totally... Saves us the back and forth time that will happen if we reach out to those service providers without that LPOA, then it, you know, we have to have a, a, a bunch of back and forth. What does it say? Like, I'm, I just, it's allowing us to get any information that we need from that person. And it allows us to share all of our information with that person. It's just basically like a, it allows us to formally exchange information and makes okay. probably more importantly, it creates some like, it brings the barrier down between us and the existing network of people that the dentist works with. You know, we don't want. Right. They, they may be looking at you 
defensively or uncertain or like, I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to yeah. share with this outside financial advisor firm or not. It's like, oh, no, here's an LPOA that I've already signed that authorizes all this. So you yeah. all talk to each other now, like just yes. to make it clear. Yep. So we send it out to each person, the client, then it just immediately responds quickly to that email to each of those providers and says, hey, just wanted to let you know that this is me and I'm, I want this to happen kind of a thing. So you actually do this by email to queue up this LPOA connection? The client signs as part of their advisory agreement. They sign the LPOA as part of their advisory agreement. And then that LPOA is extracted from the DocuSign package and then separate independent emails are sent to each of the people that the client has, you know, documented as their primary contacts over these areas. Like we have the TPA's email to the the actual processor of the payroll. Oh, interesting. There's about 15 contacts that we want just so that we don't have to have a hurdle of getting the information that we need. And then emails go out to each of those people and the client just quickly replies to each person. And then from there we're kind of like that we don't need the client that much, if that makes sense. The right. friction of the client being involved as the middle person for us to go through is kind of, it's a lot easier at that point to just get our job done. Right. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's that section. I mean, that's just like the beginning of kind of getting it completed. We currently use eMoney Advisor as the client portal, the dashboard that we're that the client personal net worth statement is being entered into and all the data connections are, are built. There's some challenges with it. It was built in 2001 and it's amazing to me what they've been able to accomplish. I'm just grateful that some people were working on technology that early. And What are still the, the challenge points for you then? I mean, I think most are generally familiar with like, it's not a portal, client data feeds in. I think that it's most software wasn't designed for mobile. Most software that's built is designed for the web and it was built for when you build software, you kind of have to know who your customer is. Right. And customers of financial planning software are most definitely the financial planners. And that causes a lot of problems when you're trying to help users or clients who don't think like financial planners. And so whether it's, you know, right capital or e-money or money guide pro the, the consumer doesn't usually like using the software that the advisor has. You know, they still right. doesn't feel as good as Betterment or Wealthfront or it doesn't feel as good as Robinhood. And that's just because most of this is not being designed for the client. And I think that's probably the, the challenge, you know, is that's why we've had to build a process outside of e-money that's, that's allowed us to scale and grow, you know, that was more designed around the needs of the user, the client, the dentist. You know, we, we can't control the user experience that e-money is providing to the client and we can't collect data through that experience. We can't design the prompts or the communication points that we want to have happen. And and so, you know, that that kind of becomes a limiting factor. But because in essence, the like you would want your client portal to be the everything for clients, like interact mm-hmm. here, enter data here, manage communication through here, like sign your client agreement and your advisory contract here, you know, it's just a little bit simpler, you know, whereas in practice, like e-money is the financial planning software portal. So like it does the planning software. You can vault the stuff there after you did it somewhere else, but you can't actually literally run the client engagement fully through, through the e-money portal. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in all fairness, like e-money was built at a time where like the methodology there was like, Input data, create a plan, let's print a binder and let's like sell a plan for $5,000, you know, like, or even before that, like, let's find products that we aren't selling to our client right now and let's sell them some new products, (laughs) you know, like, 
I mean, there's, there's so much money is poured into a platform like that and it's very valuable. It just software has a shelf life and that software is over 20 years old. And it, it's like, there's some going to be some limitations based on the engineering that goes into something like that. You can't like tear down software. Like it's like more like a house than it is like a, a paper airplane. And so we take e-money very seriously and it's the most like robust, but in terms of accuracy of like building a personal financial statement with the complexity that we want to have in it, we think it does a very good job of that. And they're good at data connections and they're good at assimilating a personal financial statement, but they're, you know, we, we need that data in order to like run our processes, right. And understand what to do. I feel like this has become kind of the classic challenge we all struggle with about when we say like our software doesn't integrate it's it's this way that data gets handed off here and there like i i put stuff in my crm but then investmenty stuff happens on my broker dealer studio platform and then my planning stuff happens in the planning software and then my performance reporting happens in that software but Mm -hmm. then i'm still entering like client contact interactions back into my crm again and you know and we do all this work to try to make all the all the things quote unquote, talk to each other, which is usually at the end of the day about canning off information or making yeah. workflows happen across systems. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and it, the real thing that we do that's unique, probably we've, we haven't gotten into our like proprietary kind of side of what we do, but from eMoney, where we manage the client interactions, we use Salesforce as our CRM. We have a, a custom build that we've engineered with the help of Process Composer uh, or Orchestrate has been the kind of baseline process management system that we've built into Salesforce. It's the most like flexible and versatile that we feel comfortable with at this point. So process composer combined with Salesforce, combined with eMoney, combined with when we started, you know, the the where financial planning begins for me though is not any of this. Like financial planning is starting now once you have an accurate, updated daily personal financial statement. I want to see business values. I want to see real estate values, all debts. I want to see amortization schedules that are updating. Like we work with small business owners. You know, a lot of people listening to this podcast probably focus on some, you know, small business target demographic. I like have a trademark on a word called entreprofessionals. That word to me describes the the dentist, the doctor, the chiropractor, the the small business service professional, right? That a lot of verticals that are this type of person and in that world, their personal financial statement is not really separate from their business finances. So they right. they look at business and personal kind of the same. And so as we construct our personal financial statements, we actually have, you know, the business checking account and the personal checking account are labeled on the financial statement as, you know, business checking colon this amount, personal checking colon this amount, business value this amount, business, you know, real estate this amount. And we we just create this consolidated personal financial statement. And then from there, it's been a long evolution, Michael, of developing our process, you know, but it, on our website, if you go to dentistadvisors.com, you can click services and then you'll click elements planning and you'll kind of see the process that we run across all of our customers. So rather than doing only an annual review or a quarterly review, what we try to do is we let those review meetings be periodic reviews like most firms do, but we actually have a very proactive process that's happening all throughout the year. And that process is during each calendar month, we're tackling a particular subject. Like in January, we're tackling liquidity. 
In February, we're tackling their savings. In March, we're looking at the profitability of their business. So we're just trying to measure their income from the prior year and really understand how healthy their career trajectory really is before we just assume that everything's fine. In April, we're looking at the valuation of that small business, that dental practice, right? In May, we're looking at the asset allocation and asset tilts, you know, a traditional, you know, investment review. In June, we're collecting, we're updating the employee census again and trying to understand whether the qualified plan that they have in place needs to be adjusted for the next calendar year. Because as many of you know, you can't start doing like qualified plan changes too late in the year. You kind of get toast. And then it doesn't work in November. You can't yeah. do 60 day notification requirements. Yep. Yes. And so, and then in July, we're looking at real estate values, how much real estate people have, what cap rates might be on rentals, whether their equity is actually giving them a, a reasonable IRR or whether they need to make adjustments. A lot of people carry a lot of rental property and a lot of real estate as dentists and they're, they're not monetizing it very well. Like it's, they're getting like 2% IRR on their rentals thinking they're making 9%, you know, and then in, we deal with debt in August, personal spending in September, retirement projections in October, insurance review in November, and then taxes in December. And then we continue to kind of rotate through that annual planning calendar with a series of reports that we've built that are constantly being updated every time we get through a month. Like the reports are specific to each client. They have a benchmark score that lets us see how they're doing in that area. So for example, liquidity, the way we measure that is we take all of their liquid assets, bank accounts and after-tax assets, and then we divide it by their annual personal spending. And that gives us a measure of how liquid someone is that we can kind of like compare to other people so that our advisors aren't just like congratulating or kind of criticizing a client without having some kind of basis for which they can compare their... And so you're... Like, are you literally, in essence, comparing clients to each other? I mean, not not by name, I'm assuming. Yeah, but so like, we'll take, let's say we take every client's liquidity in January and we take the liquid balance and we divide it by every client's annual personal spending and everyone gets a score. You could be a 4.5, an 8, you could be a 1. Your score then is something that we can like compare in a lot of different ways. Comparing by age on liquidity isn't like a horrible way to do it, but it's probably not the most like accurate way. You'd, we want to try to compare that on something we call lifetime earnings, where we would be able to just say, how much money has this person earned since they started working? The only way we can get that data is by looking at their income from the day they started working until now and getting a total lifetime earnings number. Maybe they've earned $2 million in total lifetime earnings since they started. What is their liquidity? What have they turned that into, right? What have they, how much have they essentially consumed? Doesn't mean it's going to like make you be like super critical, but like part of my view as an advisor is I want to be able to like understand the financial behavior of my clients so that I can make sure and coach them towards improving an area that they might be weak in. Maybe someone who has very low, a very low liquid term, which is the word that we call the element of liquidity, liquid term score they might be really low and that might be because they just struggle to like, they're always buying the new thing. They're never, they have a low savings rate. So I don't know if I like that's, it's kind of hard to hear it and kind of figure it out. But like this, if you go to our website and you just click elements, you'll be able to like watch videos, see our reports. I mean, I have a lot of advisors just reaching out to us going like, 
is it okay to like copy your reports? Like I just do what you're doing. And the trick with that is like, I mean, I, I don't mind like inspiring people to like follow a process because, but like our process is probably not going to be the process that works for you and your niche. You know, it probably, if I were to extract our process across all occupations, it may not translate as well as it does in dentistry. And and so I, I would just encourage people to be like maybe inspired, but like, you know, just, I think it's important that you like let your customer feedback and your client feedback dictate your process because it won't work. Like, you know, your process needs to be organic. And we have a design patent, uh, several trademarks on the elements process itself. You can kind of see those on our website, but it's something that for me, the reason we created it was first and foremost, like we just wanted to do planning in a more accurate way. And we wanted to bring the cost of good planning down. We want to like make it not be so expensive to get good planning. And the only way that we could accomplish that was trying to automate things a little bit more. And we feel like we have a long way to go still in terms of accomplishing that vision, but we've got a great start on it. So let me understand a little more. So I, I'm kind of connecting the dots now of you've got this planning structure varying from like $200 a month to $500 a month to $700 a month because you've got this elements process of sort of here are the 12 core areas of financial planning that we help our clients with, which you boil down to sort of a single number or thing that you produce in a report that then you can, you know, help the client say, okay, are you moving this number? How are we doing in this, in this area and try to move them forward on whatever that element is 12 elements, 12 months of the year. So there's always something to talk about every month of the year and, and see what they're improving on. And then you wash, rinse and repeat for the next year. Yeah. So help me understand like how this actually comes together in practice. Like, are you literally meeting with clients on a monthly basis to talk about the element of the month? Is this a report that you have to create every month? And like who creates the report? Or have you figured out how to make this happen automatically with technology? Like I'm I'm kind of getting the gist now. Now I'm just hearing like that is a lot of reports and phone calls and work just to yeah. sort of sustain $200 a month. So yeah. like, what does this look like from an execution and delivery end to cover all these different areas? So our end game, our goal is, you know, when you do something this big or this complex, the, the long term is that it's not all done through reports. And we can talk a little bit about that later, but like, you know, physical reports are expensive to create and they are time consuming. That's why banks charge for like statements. And so, yes, we like, we probably have a long way to go in terms of bringing the cost of planning down. But I would rather be fighting that battle than the one where I'm justifying, you know, why I'm, I think that the market is going to put pressure on people that aren't delivering a good process. And so we figure we tackle that and just, you know, regardless of the cost, let's figure out what the cost is, right? And let's go the minimally viable product, minimally viable planning product that like we think has to happen. So like, do I think a financial planner can spend a whole year and never talk about a client's savings rate at all? Ugh. I think you've got to at least talk about the, the their savings rate at least once per year in order to be minimally viable as an accountability partner around savings. And so we created the elements are only like the minimally viable stuff that you like have to talk about in order for it to be responsible from our point of view. We're not trying to create more work than is necessary. I just wanted to emphasize okay. that. But okay. how do we create that? 
inside of the CRM right now, most of the data points are coming through a series of forms that we're emailing a client every month. They're lightweight forms, but the clients aren't always the designated contact point, right? Like sometimes it's the payroll provider. Sometimes it's a CPA. Sometimes it's the client. But at least once a month, someone's getting a form that they're either populating or uploading something into, usually just typing into like a Google spreadsheet that is a shared spreadsheet between us and a provider. Sometimes it's like an upload. Sometimes it's an email response. But we have to do some kind of verification. And Process Composer is kicking off, you know, for every client every month, there's seven or 10 different little steps in the process for the month, right? So the first step might be verify a piece of data. So send out old employee census to payroll person and have them edit any new employees, delete old ones and update income. We get that back. And then the associate advisor takes that data. And the next step is kick to TPA and get an updated proposal. Then we populate our element report of the month, the QT report that has all the data. Again, some of this is manual entry, right? Into a giant macro spreadsheet. So right now it's just just giant data entry mess, okay? Into a giant spreadsheet. And we've built it to where it's quite stable. This is like behind the scenes of what big companies are doing you probably don't know about. (laughs) Yeah. I still remember with one, one large firm that shall not be named, like we were we were asking them to do a technology integration for something and they wouldn't do it. And we said like, well, if, if you won't do it, then like, we're just going to have to fax this material to you, which is basically like our snarky version of a threat. And they said, well, actually all we do right now is take the form that you send us, print it and walk it down the hallway to hand it off. So actually if you sent it by fax, it would be faster for us because the fax machine is in that person's office. (laughs) Whereas when you send it to us electronically, we actually have to print it on a printer and someone has to walk it down the hallway. It's like, this is is a very large, well-established firm, major financial services provider, but like that was their internal process for this particular form because they still hadn't digitized it fully. And so- Totally. That would like that was how it happened behind the scenes. Like all this fancy front end technology, but all it actually did was queue up someone to hit a print button and walk it down a hallway. And faxing was actually more efficient for them. Yeah, and I and I I would say like there's no way to get automated payroll data unless we required every client to be on the same payroll provider. I'm not going to do that. That's like a an edge case that I'm not willing to like spend money on. So the answer is. The person doing payroll edits this Google document. We have it. We get a notification when it's updated. And then we take that information. We populate any changes that are required into this giant, let's say we have a giant spreadsheet for the month of June and a client is a row. There might be eight or 10 data points that gets added to that sheet. And then from that giant Excel spreadsheet for that month, we have a one very talented person, Jacob Rich, who's worked with me for a long time. And a group of 10 or 12, you know, associate advisors that are constantly also being, you know, getting up to his level of experience. They take that Excel macro and it goes through Adobe InDesign into a giant mail merge. Adobe InDesign is, you know, a design program. You can build reports, you can build anything you want. So the spreadsheet maps to fields in the reports that we're creating. And then we just get hundreds of reports generated for that month. Interesting. So that's why it's a giant spreadsheet with one row per client. I think most of us would imagine, like I I just would assume by default, like, 
okay, well, you're plugging all this into like each client's got a spreadsheet so you can track their data over time. But now I follow like, no, no, wait. each mm-hmm. each report is a spreadsheet because you're going to enter there was a, a hundred lines of client data. So you can take one spreadsheet of here's everybody's uh, savings rate calculation for the month and then port out name, savings rate, whatever the other details are, all ports into Adobe InDesign and then comes out as a giant mail merge with like, okay, here are your 100 individual, 100 client-specific individual reports that all went through Adobe InDesign and came from one centralized spreadsheet so you could gather this and try to systematize it. Now we are at a point that I'm giving people the like that, you know, how you talk a lot, Michael, about there's pain that people go through early in yes, their career. Like you, you have you have the vision of what you want to do. And then yes. there's like, OK, how are we going to MacGyver this to actually happen? Yeah. It's like this is the MacGyvering stage. And when you go to build something like software, which we've engaged in, right, our software team, you know, like they move much slower than. Salesforce and Adobe InDesign and Excel spreadsheets. Like you can build a minimally viable product that functions really well without having to go start coding it, right? It's not a good idea to start building software when you just have an idea. You have to have a functioning system before you go build software. You'll end up like building the wrong thing. Right, because I guess once you've got this thing, now it's it's just like just in air quotes. Yes. Now it's just going to a software designer saying like, Here's a completely consistently executable 17-step process. It happens to go through a bunch of Excel workbooks and three different programs. Please automate pulling this data and make it automatically appear where it's supposed to be at the end so we don't have to have the intervening steps. But but you've created all of them and every piece of it. So now someone just has to turn you know, slightly messy built in the real world process into automate this thing that we've already vetted and we know it works. Works and clients are happy and customers love it. And they're, you know, coming to us in droves and they're, we know that this isn't just us coming up with a fancy widget. Like they want it, right? Can we go better than this? Yes. But like, you got to prove that your system is stable before you start turning it into something that's even more automated. We are now past the Excel spreadsheet phase and Adobe InDesign phase. We've moved to, I don't know if you've heard of Conga, but Conga is like a a PowerPoint report generator that works with Salesforce. So now our forms are populating our Salesforce database. And then the Salesforce database is like using Conga to generate the reports in batches that are more efficient than a big Adobe mail merge InDesign. But that was version two, right? And version three is better than version two. And version four is better than version three. And you just kind of have to keep going. But when we started, this is 15 years ago. It's me and Ryan Isaac, my co-founder. And we've got one spreadsheet with all the data that we ever want. And we're calling clients on a monthly basis and having phone call meetings, right? And we're populating things and we're not even doing it monthly. We're doing it annually, right? And we're having these five-hour meetings and people are just like passing out at the table, you know, like stop talking to me about finances. <laughs> and we're like, we're almost done. We just have to get through your last disability insurance quote from this, you know, carrier or your tax returns analysis is we just got we got to do your profitability analysis or and and we just got to the point where there's so much to review. Right. And, and again, minimally viable stuff. Like I'm, just, I'm not saying like, what can we make up that is valuable? I'm like, if I'm owning holistic, comprehensive financial planning, 
I can't like not talk to you about the fact that your interest rate is higher than the market for your home loan. Like I can't just like let that one go. Right. Because like that decision is more valuable than tilting to small cap value. But I'm just struck that you took what is what essentially are are you know twelve financial planning conversations and just forced them. I don't mean that in a bad way. Like just forced them into literally a series of twelve sequential monthly conversations. Right. So I I, I can imagine this just from the farm end. Like we're always collecting the same set of data from every single client for the current month. Yeah. We're porting it all to the same place. Everybody knows exactly what we're focused on this month. There's only like one core conversation that's happening. Yeah. Our we're- social media and our marketing and our positioning and our content reinforces that conversation. And then I get it now. So like the the eagle's nest of younger, newer CFPs, because you've systematized all this stuff. Yes, there's some level of human being conversations and interactions and bits of manual data entry. But like you, the founding advisor, are not doing this by hand now. We have you know hired talent that costs a little bit less than senior financial planners to be able to do some of the the tasks that it takes where you need someone with some financial planning training, but not necessarily as much. So you can save a little bit on labor costs as you bring them up and develop them. And just that's what happens when you focus on actually systematizing this as a process is how can I batch it? How can I do it consistently from my clients at the same time? How can I bring down my costs by automate this piece? you know, macro that piece, get cost-effective talents to do this part that could actually be delegated down. And and you start iterating that direction. Yeah. And then your talent, Ryan, my co-founder, can train Matt, who's a senior financial advisor. And then Matt can train Will and Will can train, you know, Cody and Cody can train Kristen and Jordan and Taylor and Powell and Jake and Abby and Lauren. And they can all some people have been there three months longer than the person before them, but it's just like an easier way to train. And if, if I'm honest about it, like without my team running this process, like we don't, like it doesn't work. Like I don't do any of this. Like it, Jacob's going to be listening to this. Ryan and Matt are going to be listening to it going like, he's kind of like not describing exactly what's happening <laughs> on the back end. Like he doesn't really know. <laughs> so sorry guys, if I'm butchering it, but like that, that is the beauty of like, a working as a team and having everyone be willing to just take a little bit smaller piece of a bigger pie. No one's greedy. I'm not trying to have this be all about me and none of the advisors want it to be all about them. We're just trying to help more clients and bring the cost down. We're all committed to our corporate vision, which is a world where people embrace the habits of holistic financial health and live their lives to the fullest. We really want that to happen, whether it's at our firm or, you know, if it's at anyone else's firm, we're just hoping that instead of paying lip service to planning, we actually start executing it so that people, their net worth increases, but they're also like just more present. And and we think our the, the biggest benefit of this process is clients feeling like they're on top of things. So you asked like, how is it actually happening on the deliverable side? Is that once these reports are generated, each client has an associate advisor like you know, Kristen, and Kristen emails the report to Ryan and says, Ryan, Dr. Jim Javitis's report is done. And this is his benchmark scorecard for the month of July. Please let me know if you have any questions. So it didn't go to the client. It went to the advisor, right? But we're signaling to the client that the advisor is about to engage in some work on your behalf. You might hear from him. You might not. Like if he thinks things are okay, like he's not going to reach out. If he thinks he's going to, if he needs to tell you something, he's going to reach out. But this report contains a lot of value. 
The client understands that the advisor is reviewing it and will be in touch if there's a challenge or a problem or an adjustment that needs to be made. And sometimes the associate advisor will make the recommendation or adjustment on their own. Like if they notice something, we're, tr- we're constantly training our associates to try to identify the gaps instead of just sending the report, right? Try to identify the gap or the challenge. And th- a lot of times they're, they're doing that. And that's creating just more planning happening more frequently. Right now, is it more hours? For sure. Like it's more hours than the average advisor spends. Like we're, we're between 12 and 13 hours a year per client. We spend a lot of hours. That being said, we also you know, charge an asset management fee that's premium and we get paid on that. And our financial planning fees, while they might not be covering all of our time, our asset management fee does. We think that's the, the, the way that this type of premium service scales best. And I've tried to, we'll talk, you and me can talk about fixed fee and AUM at some point, but I just wanted to kind of clarify the, the email is triggered every month. And then obviously advisors are texting, calling and following up with clients as a product of all of that. And when clients call in, advisors have this like great, like recent set of like, imagine a client calls in like, and you've got the last four to five months of these reports with like, really good data to reference that they've seen that you've seen you've been doing work it's just a much more like like in software we call it like micro interactions where you you do a little thing and there's a little payoff you know a text and that's what we kind of think this financial planning process does is it's moving towards micro interactions instead of these big heavy macro kind of things like a plan you got to renew your $5,000 plan with me this year. It's like, oh, I don't know if I really want that. You know, it's kind of like heavy. What about just like, you know, one sign up for this thing that you just sign up for once and then you don't have to like keep signing up for it all the time. Right. Anyway. Well, I, I love the framing that you're giving that around micro interactions like we don't need a giant plan like at the end of the day i would venture to say that the 12 elements that you're going to actually systematically evaluate and generate reports for throughout the year actually covers more financial planning touch points than most advisors probably actually cover systematized every year at least for every client the way that yeah. you guys do yeah but you're not doing an annual plan update, which takes giant chunks of time. And then you have to stagger them through the year because you couldn't possibly do them all at once at, at one point in the year. Yeah. And then you're continuously in producing plan updates. And, yeah. and just that's our usual, I think, reactive mode for most of us. You live in a world of micro interactions that may add up to the same thing, but you can you can batch the micro interactions, right? Like you got to get all the data into the giant spreadsheet to pipe it through InDesign to do the mail merge to get the thing. But you built most of those pieces to at least be semi-automated, right? Those yeah. steps hand off once you queue it up. And you know you can produce 100 plus reports on savings rates all in one batch once you've queued it up. And then 100 plus reports on debt and 100 plus reports on insurance and, and, and profitability of the firms and all the other pieces that you're, that you're covering in that process. But you're batching them. Everybody's focused on one thing. So you can actually do those micro interactions, as you put it, in a much more systematized manner and clients understand like, what am I paying for on an ongoing basis? Why am I paying you every month? What are you quote doing for me? Like, yeah, I get a deliverable 
from yeah. dentist advisors literally every month. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's quite a bit compared to what almost any other firm out there is is doing in practice. Like, just that's a lot of stuff. We are so passionate about elevating the standard of financial planning. Like, I came from Northwestern Mutual in my first three years. And my experience there was just like, I felt I met a lot of high integrity people, but I saw more product sales that than I was comfortable with. And I didn't really fit that system. But then I realized that most of the 400,000 plus people that are calling themselves, you know, some kind of advisor, like in the country, they're, they're doing the same thing. To some degree, even the robo advisors are doing the same thing. The conflicts of interest are just getting cheaper. And they're, they're, they're no different. And, and, and so I, I'm just like, I want planning to actually happen. I want the public to know that we don't talk about savings generically. Like if you make between $140,000 and $175,000 and you have less than a 12% savings rate, you're probably not like pushing yourself that hard. When you're at $225,000 to $240,000 a year, your savings rate should look a lot more like 17%. And that's part of the feedback you give and how you benchmark clients is like, let's literally look at your savings rate relative to your income because it, it, it ties in very directly, right? There's a, I got to cover food, clothing, shelter, no matter what, but it's easier to cover that making 250 than 50. So yep. savings rates tend to go up because there's other free cash flow. And I guess that's part of your process of like, we're going to give you a savings rate score and we're benchmarking you to other people in your situation, I'm assuming it's not always income-based because like profitability factors probably tie to something else. Revenues, right? Yeah. But you're benchmarking them in that manner to say, how are you doing relative to someone in similar financial circumstances? Exactly. The, the benchmarks are either age would be the benchmark and you might have every three years or every five years. And we're constantly evaluating our benchmarks to determine if it's even effective or useful or if it's insightful or if it's just like confusing. But like, it's usually an income band, you know, like when you're looking at savings rates, it's all income bands. You don't want to compare someone that's making 300,000 a year AGI to somebody who's making 110 and say, you're saving less of a percentage of that person. It's like, well, it's not really fair. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, there is, like you said, this fixed cost of, you know, nine grand a month on average across like anyone making six figures or more that kind of like, it feels like, you know, if you're at a hundred thousand of income and you have a 10% savings rate, you're doing pretty good. Like you're doing pretty good at that. Like I, I would say you're above the median. If you're at 70,000 a year and you have a 10% savings rate, you're doing really well, especially if you're married and have any kids. Sometimes clients get, you know, a little competitive around it. And so we're, we're, we're conscious of how we do it. So we don't create guilt, shame, fear. You know, we don't want that to happen. Although I imagine at the same time, like it's a, you know, it's a powerful thing. I mean, tell someone like, you know, I know you feel like you're saving pretty well, but you could still save a little bit more. And it's another thing to just literally say like, well, your savings rate right now is is 13%. And across all of the dentists we work with, the average at your income level is 17%. Yeah, totally. Like, well, yeah. well, crap, I don't want to be below average. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and like, that's, that's totally different. Like, we get emails like that all the time. They're like, tell me a little bit more about the benchmark itself. Like what was the peak and trough or what was the high point in your benchmark for me on this one? It's instructive. I think it's best. I think the advisor benefits most from it though. Give people a way to keep score and understand how they're doing. Like get it, get it to a number so they know they're on track. 
yeah ideally a number where they can compare themselves to everyone else because right or wrong like we are social animals we like to know where we stand relative to the herd it's part of how we're wired yeah so we're excited about that and hoping that we can figure this out and continue to bring the cost down so that this type of thing can be you know utilized in a in a way that's not just like internal to us you know I just feel like it's so expensive to build software. I'm way over investing in like an infrastructure that, you know, if we just dominated the dental industry, like we'll be great. But like there's so many financial advisors, I would just love to like have be able to like use that system and like talk to them about it and build a community. Like it's just like exciting to like talk to advisors, but like we can't really like deviate from right now what we're doing. It's just like... Yep. We're going to, we have to fix the problem first and we haven't solved it, you know, yet. So, so help me understand now the way that the client interactions and meetings work. Like I get you're producing the reports and sending the reports out and clients get the reports, but you did say like, this still actually adds up to 12 plus you know, hours per client per year that you're interacting. So like, is there a, is there a phone call after each report? Is there a meeting after each report? Is it like we send the monthly reports, but then we do quarterly meetings or semi-annual meetings or like one big annual meeting to recap how we're doing? Where does meeting time and FaceTime fit in with this very systematized monthly reports that the structure that you've created? So right now, m- what we're trying to do is have advisors' calendars be more open, right? Like so that they can respond to the we call it reactive requests. So even though we've got this proactive thing happening, advisors are often emailing, leaving audio notes. We have Voxer, we have audio recordings where we leave these asynchronous messages, right? Like, hey, when you get a chance, I just recorded this for you. We use Soapbox with Wistia where we record us our face next to a report and giving clients a message about their report and telling them what we think. Do you say you're using Voxer? Like you're using Voxer with clients? So we've got iMessage and we have Voxer and we have Facebook Messenger. And technically, like right now, the hard part is we have to get exports out of there and we have to like archive things and keep track of it all. For compliance purposes. It's a mess. Most advisors will use their computer. We have like a a MacBook and a, a microphone. They'll just hit record on QuickTime, record a message, and then drop it into the email that the report is in and kind of describe something. Some will use Soapbox, which is a screen recording thing like Loom. You know, Soapbox is made by Wistia. Where you you screen share something and you can have your video next to it or alongside it as well. And just here's me talking about the thing that I'm going to be doing or that I'm providing. Or an audio note. And some of our advisors will use Voxer or iMessages or something to communicate with the client, right? But it's up to the advisor on how he wants to communicate to the client to get the client his interpretation of what should happen. We call that proactive planning. Okay, so that's your, you got 10 minutes a month, 15 minutes a month, you've got to like give people your perspective on what they need to adjust or change or just tell them they're doing great and encourage them for the good job that they're doing. And that happens on an advisor by advisor basis. So that doesn't add up to be the 12 to 13, you know, hours a year I'm talking about, right? The total time comes from client responses. They'll respond and say, great, man, can we schedule a a meeting? I'd love to chat with you. Okay, great. Put you on the calendar or a phone call just coming in live. Like we're ready for a meeting the minute they call. So you call, you have a question, we got all your data, we're ready to go right then. So it's like advice on demand, right? 
And that's kind of what we've tried to pride ourselves in is if you call with a question, we're ready because we've been doing all this planning all the time. Any question you have, we're ready to answer it. Interesting. So it's it's kind of a strange, uh, it's strange, the wrong word, like an interesting dynamic. So rather than saying we're going to be really proactive with planning per se, we're proactive in giving you these ongoing deliverables. And the advice that we think you need to get from those deliverables, right? Directly from the deliverables. And then when clients either have something come up in their lives or they see something they want to do in response to the deliverable, they will reply to you and you can say, well, I'm I'm ready to do advice on demand, which is a much better label than reactive. Like we're ready to do advice on demand, but but you're not in a purely reactive planning mode. You're actually in a phenomenally proactive planning mode because you're continuously pushing out monthly deliverables and monthly follow-up communication tied to it. So you're always in front of clients with something proactive. Yeah. But then the channel's still open of like, but when your life changes and you need to talk to us or work with us, like we're always ready. We're, we're here. We're, yeah. we're ready to go. That being said, I will say, you know, this week and last week, we've been having discussions about, you know, if someone doesn't reactively reach out to us in four months, you know, when are we going to, which doesn't happen very often. Like people are responding almost monthly in a small way, like micro interactions. Right. But we have to, at least at some point say, you know, it just, there's just something about a meeting that's important. We love phone calls. We love meetings, right? We love two-way conversations that are live, not just asynchronous chatting. Right. So when are we going to schedule a meeting on a cadence? Are we like, what is the limit before we're like, we got to have a meeting. We can't let someone go. You got to have at least twice a year. That's kind of where we're leaning. Even if we've had a bunch of asynchronous and even if they're, they seem fine, there's just something you discover when you do a two-way that I yep. think is impossible to like leave out of the equation. So that's where we're at now is most advisors are having two-ways all the time. You got to have like a chance to stop and, and go, I want to just really get to know this person better. Those meetings, though, we do not do financial planning in. They are relationship meetings. These are like, talk to me. I want to listen to you. I just want to hear how you're doing. Like, that's the goal of the two-way meeting. And I feel like we cram so much planning, so much minutiae into these two-way conversations, our meetings, our quarterly and annual meetings, that we end up not being able to just sit and listen. Because if you just sit and listen for an hour, your relationship gets to a new place with that client, you know? And, and, but if you're talking at them the whole time, it's not effective. So we, we really feel like we've got the best of both worlds. You know, we've got this great proactive micro transaction, micro interaction process that's happening that preps us for very, very great two-way conversations that happen either at the client's request or if too much time passes, we'll, we'll get one on the calendar, you know, cause if any good advisor can tell, you know, it's like, it's just been a little longer than I want. Yeah. You know, it's time. Something might not be right. It's just been too long since we've checked in. Yep. Yep. And I think it's just, it's awesome because advisors had flexibility, but their calendars aren't jammed, you know, but they're doing great planning. Like it, dude, this is like, honestly, it just feels like 14 years and we're finally figuring it out. Like it is really hard. As you know, you've done it for just as long as I have. It's like getting to the point where, we feel this good about our process. Like it's just been, it's 60 hours a week for 10 years. You know, I mean, it, I just, I'm really grateful for how much love has gone into it from our team. It's been a lot of work. 
So, so talk to us now about the pricing model. You had, you had mentioned earlier on sort of this $200 a month to $500 a month, if a small subset pays $700 a month. But then you also mentioned in the, in the middle of this discussion about elements that you charge a, a quote, premium AUM fee as well. So like, what does pricing look like overall? How does this, how does this work from the business end? Well, yeah, this is, this is a long journey. I've always wanted to be a fixed fee advisor. I've always wanted to just not have invest. I wanted to manage investments for free to take away all of the conflict I could possibly take away and just price based on complexity. We did a big, deep research project into complexity in our own clientele. Took all of our clients. We had advisors score their clients based on complexity. And then we, Justin Copier, my COO, he, you know, found all the R squareds that we felt, you know, were pointing us towards complexity. And, you know, most of those were probably the most prominent is income, right? Income, more than net worth, more than investments, income drove complexity. And net worth was a stronger correlation than AUM, right? Uh, Investment, liquid investment balances wasn't, you know, it it was, it was in the top five, but you know, it, it wasn't number one or number two in terms of how many hours does it take to work with a client? Like what's required here? And, and so with that research, you, you kind of are just like everyone does look at the AUM model and you're just kind of like, doesn't make any sense. You know I mean? It, it, and then reality kicks in, you know, then, then the market speaks and the clients talk and you, you give them the option. You're like, you know, this is the truth about how the two options you have. I can lose my shirt on you right now while you don't have any money. And one day when you're worth a lot of money, I'll get overpaid, but I'm going to help you get there. And that's one option. The other option is pay me a lot more than you can afford right now. And then I won't ever have to charge you again, or, or I'll just be able to raise my fee by 3% a year. That's the conversation you have to have with people that are young and with no money, younger people or earlier career people that don't have any liquidity. That's their choice, really. And if you give them that choice, they're going to pick, I'll give you a little piece of my investments and just help me, please, because no one else will. That's what they will say. You know, that right. you'll see that happening with Rick Edelman. You'll see that happening with our firm. You see that happening with a lot of firms. It's like you give them the choice, they're going to pick the option that is the least friction for them. Now, if you in a fixed fee model, I can go and cherry pick rich people all day long that are paying 80 grand a year to Mass Mutual and I'll sell them a 45,000 a year planning package, right? And they'll cut their fee in half and they love me and they're happy. And I think that's where like fixed fee, you can win all the time in that market. It's like undercut the, you know, guy with that's overpaying and I'll be cheaper and, you know, he's overcharging. And I guess the reason like that, it kind of started losing its appeal to me is I, I felt like my heart was in helping people create the wealth, getting there. Like I love the journey. I like helping people that can't get help. I like helping people that are high income professionals, but like no one's you got a guardian life insurance guy coming into dental school selling you, you know, five grand a year of freaking whole life insurance and a lifetime benefit DI. And, you know, the kid can only afford three grand a month and DI coverage because it's a 4,000 a year annual premium. Yeah. You know, it's like that just feels like highway robbery to me. And, and like, how do we get down market to save these people? You know, you can't get down market with fixed fee. It's really hard. We kind of feel like the, the happy medium is like, 
what we're doing right now, which is a minimum fee that's based on complexity, right? If you're a new graduate, you might pay just 200 bucks a month or maybe maybe it's, you know, we're trying to get to where we can even bring that cost down a little bit, you know, to 99 or something. So you, like your balancing point of this, I don't want to charge you. If I charge you full fee up front, it's hard to be competitive because someone may just take you on a lower AUM fee, you know, hoping for future upside. I don't want to do the full AUM fee because that's, that just doesn't give me enough revenue to cover the work that we're doing now because we got a pl- intensive planning process. And so your balancing point was, let's just literally do a blend. I'm going to charge you a monthly fee and an AUM fee, recognizing that the AUM fee will not be a huge component early on, but at least we're kind of setting that groundwork. Yep. And over time, the AUM fee makes the fixed fee disappear because I, you know, I know that at some point down the road, I don't need to keep charging people that. And I don't know that that's the right model or not, but for our niche and what we're working on, it's, I think it's been the right fit. And then at some point down the road, you can cap it, you know, too. You don't have to charge them indefinitely. You can cap it or you can just keep bringing your AUM fee down a lot. You can come down to 25 bips or, you know, but I, I feel like there's, that's kind of where we're at. And it's an automated process that we use Morningstar Office for our billing and portfolio management. I don't want to say portfolio management, but for our billing, it's basically a billing system for us. And our, I guess it's our, our invoicing as well. Morningstar Office balances integrate into Salesforce. And then we manage our monthly billing is happening through PayPal. And the PayPal integration just reads the Salesforce fields and understands where the billable AUM balance is and then sets the monthly fee based on people's AUM balance. If it goes down, if their AUM goes down, we charge more. If their AUM goes up, then their planning fee comes down. So that's kind of how it's working right now. And when people's credit cards expire, we have to get a new one. And then the AUM fee itself still comes from the portfolio. This this integration from Morningstar Office to to Salesforce, to billing is just so that you can figure out when people's planning fee is supposed to be coming down because your AUM fee has gone up. That's correct. Okay. Yep. Because we, you know, it's hard to keep track. Otherwise, it's a pretty big cost to manually track that across hundreds of clients, thousands of clients, you know, so. And so what does the AUM fee schedule look like then? Like, how does that work? in combination with monthly fees? Every million dollars. Right now it's one and a half on the first million, one on the second million and 50 bips, three million and up. Okay. I could see us changing to 25 bips on the fourth million and up pretty soon. I could see us doing that. Like we're, we think like asset management itself, the cost is probably like realistically 15 basis points. You know, that's really the cost of the asset management. And so we just need to get enough margin to cover the asset management and not just detract people from feeling like we're trying to somehow we think that fourth million is going to add complexity. I like simpler breakpoints and fewer drops, but we kind of like sending the signal too. like it's we're we're a premium provider. I think it's worth it. And that's how we're choosing to get compensated. Well, and, and I'm struck overall that, and again, I don't mean this as negative as you put it, you're a premium provider. Like, you're at 1.5% on an AUM fee for the first million, which I think for some advisors is already higher than than what they charge. And you have a monthly fee that starts at $200 a month on top of that, moving up to $500 a month or $700 a month for, for clients that have more complexity. So you, know, you, you can have clients that are at 
a million dollars at 1.5% plus a monthly fee. Although I guess your monthly fee starts coming down then. So they're probably not their full monthly fee at a million. Yeah. The monthly fee starts coming down at $500,000. It's coming down hundred bucks a month, every 250 grand right now. So, you know, if you had a million dollars, you're only paying, even your complex clients are 295, right? Once they're at one and a half, it's gone, right? Once they're right. at one and a half a million dollars, then the monthly fee's gone. But, but still at that level, you're at well over a, you know, they were still one and a half percent on the first million. We're well and, over 1%. Yeah. yeah. You're still at about 1.3 on a blended, yep. on a blended rate then, which, which again, just makes the point like, well, when you have an entirely structured process, like we've got our 12 elements, we generate uh, the reports on them. You're going to get monthly outreach from us with clear deliverables of what you're getting and all the planning support that goes with it. Oh, and we're specialized only for dentists. So no one else understands dentists as well as we understand dentists. So like if I'm a dentist and you get me that well, and you're that deeply into what I'm working on and I can see my progress because you've literally now given me 12 data points yeah. to prove that like you added value because here's how my numbers improved over the span of the relationship with you. They have to decide whether your planning process is worth one and a half percent plus a monthly fee, but like no one's fee shopping you. So, like no, no one else does what you do. Well, th- I'm sure that we're not getting some customers that are like, are you kidding me? Like I can go to Betterment and do it direct for 25 bips, right? I'm like, well, do you want, if you want to use Betterment, we'll use Betterment for 15 bips and just add our, on there. like, what, what, what is it about? The I can cost? implement that for you. Yeah, you like, really want. you want, like, I don't care. Like that's not a cost that we value. Right. And so if people have a question about it, it's like, okay, like in one year, I could give someone a piece of career advice. Okay, let's just say it's like how to finance the 3D x-ray machine they're about to buy. Right, because that's actually something you probably deal with on a regular basis for clients. Because again, that's what that's what happens when you're focused in a niche. Or like, I'm about to hire this office manager. How should I structure a compensation agreement? Or I'm about to hire this associate. How should I structure his contract? Or which one of these lenders like has the best refinance terms on my $700,000 building loan, right? Can you, can you just get me this completed? Can you fill out my loan applications for me for my student loan refinance or one transaction, one piece of advice when you're a specialist, it just dwarfs your, the cost of your fee. If you really are specialized, like our you know, 25-year-old CFP planner knows more about dentists than a generic advisor will in his whole career, right? And so you just start developing. I think that's the future of where advisors can kind of survive against the... I'm recording a podcast right now with me and my co-host, Ryan, or that we, we have a podcast called The Dentist Money Show that's like... It's definitely not as popular as your podcast, Michael, but a lot of dentists listen to it. <laughs> so... We have a good, uh, a very large monthly listener percentage. I, I would say probably like 10% of the dental market, maybe like 15% of the dental market, like listens to our podcast. And that's where we get all of our, our growth from. Ryan and I are trying to record a podcast to train our own internal team on the way we think because our team's getting bigger than we can. Like we used to be able to do one-on-ones, right? And now it's like, geez, like we have to take advantage of our time and like record it. So at dentistadvisors.com slash advisor podcast, 
anyone who wants to like listen to what all of this stuff like that wants to, you can just go there and you're going to be able to listen to like what me and Ryan think about fees and billing and fee pressure and all this stuff. The reason I'm suggesting this is to your question about the value of an advisor and how can you charge this much? Is it worth it? Like if you let yourself like kind of get into career advice and like income-based planning, right? And and a little bit of consulting work. Just to, you don't have to be a business consultant. We're not a dental practice management consultant. Like we have a, a really strong network of consultants we refer out to. But even just the fact that we can add that extra value, someone's like, you seriously know like how to save 2% a year in interest off of this tenant improvement allowance or you know, like how to monitor the cost of my associates payroll so that I'm not like overpaying unnecessarily paying my hygienist improperly. Like, it's just like, you could say the cost of that is like this big fixed fee and they wouldn't pay it. Right. They won't pay it. But if you say the cost of this is it's, it's joined to be, you know, 1% on the, that second million still, they're going to pay it and they were going to be better off because of it. And so like my argument here is like, if we know that people won't hire financial planners because it's expensive and they don't have a lot of money, how are we going to ever get people to where they have money? How are we ever going to help like people without money get there? If we're like, well, come talk to me when you finally have money, then I'll talk to you. It's like, we're never going to help people. So talk to us about growth you how are you finding dentists and building into this niche so you mentioned like you've got a dentist money show podcast and 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 growth comes from the podcast like talk to us more about what that looks like like what what's the show how did you build it how do you how do you turn random podcast listeners into people that are willing to pay a premium fee for premium financial planning it's probably not unlike you know a lot of advisors that are being successful that way but we Started our show, I think we're at episode 232. So 232 episodes in, we release one a week every Wednesday. So that podcast, The Dentist Money Show, what we do is we've tried to, you know, we we know dentists, we know what they want to listen to. So we're get, we'll have one week, it'll be how dentistry is going to change in the aftermath of COVID-19, right? We'll bring in BJ Sorensen from ultra dent and have an interview with him about the fee pressure dentists are going to get. So like one business management kind of episode. And then me and Ryan, my co-host will do episode the following week on how to keep your cool when the market has a, you know, an 11% down day, right. And what that feels like and kind of a more traditional like finance topic or insurance, you know, we'll talk about disability coverage through the American dental association versus through the guardian or whatever. So, so kind of just altering like, one business management episode, we'll call it purely for them. And then one traditional, like, here's the value we happen to provide. Yeah. Like one financial planning for you episode, but actually highlights your value proposition more directly. Well, what I'd say is we don't, we, my, my CMO would say we actually don't promote our value proposition well enough. Like that would be like more middle of funnel content that we need to create. Most of our personal episodes are like top of funnel education, like, we're not selling ourselves at all. We're like teaching, 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 teaching. And that's why I think our listenership is good. Like we don't, we're not promotional. We'll do why are PPOs worth the hassle on the business side and why a 10% savings rate just isn't going to cut it for a dentist. 
And then we'll, you know, go to how to connect your profits to like a higher purpose through a social mission and your practice to the pros and cons of a partnership in your dental practice. And, but they're all education and there's no sales. We advertise through the podcast twice an episode. It'll just say book a free consultation with dentist advisors. Audio just has a way of converting financial planning customers, unlike blogs, unlike video. It's like, there's something about it. Like you just look at, you know, look at Rick Edelman, look at you, look at, you know, Dave Ramsey. Like it's just something about audio that's better than content writing. I don't know what it is, but it works better. And and I, 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 I feel like people want to get to know you. Yeah. We've, we found the same thing that just podcast content of various types that that we do across the business I'm involved with. Uh, the podcast content is phenomenally powerful and impactful. What we're trying to do is we use that podcast as a way to supplement like our local advisor presence. We're starting to expand like a nationwide network of advisors. And what we're doing is we'll, we'll say we've got Ryan Isaac down in Phoenix, Scottsdale, right? And we've got Cody Murray in Oklahoma City. And we just keep like using digital marketing as a way to draw in a national audience and then use our local advisors as a way to kind of own their territory and kind of like go after and try to grow their local market. Because there's some things that digital marketing content can't reach. Like I thought I was going to be able to like market to 10% of the dental population, meaning like convert 10% of the dental population with a podcast, you know, just like get them all in that through that channel, but it doesn't really work that way. Like, you know, I could convert like 3% of the market that way, but you have to have some sales, like events make a big difference for us. Webinars make a big difference. I was going to say like, how do you turn, like, how are you actually turning a podcast listener into someone who does business with you? Well, shout out to Jeff Morgan, my friend and CMO and partner. He ran a digital marketing agency for over 20 years and then sold that and bought some stock in my business. You know, he's an expert at customer journeys and lead, you know, nurturing. And we use the podcast in addition to social media, in addition to articles, in addition to webinars, in addition to local events. And we know everything about our leads. Like we have lead scores that every lead has a score. Every activity a lead completes gets points that add up to their score going higher. And our sales team, Kyle and Jimmy, are all day long waiting for Marketo to tell them, you know, what action to take with what lead based on an activity that might be happening. Like someone's on a landing page right now looking at whether they want to sign up for a consultation. (laughs) They haven't signed, but they're there. You know, Jimmy's going to get an email. It's going to be like, you got an, you know, Dr. Jones is an 80 point lead. He's had 17 touches and he's watched this many videos and this many podcasts. Like you got to reach out. It takes good old fashioned sales to keep moving. We haven't prioritized sales until eight months ago. Like I didn't do any sales until about eight months ago. We just did marketing, which to me, marketing is like one to many communications and then sales is like one to one. And so we didn't do any kind of like outbound sales or referrals even or introductions. And now we've got a, you know, we met with Dan Allison again this week. He's trying to finally help us formally implement an introduction-based system into our culture that we've been kind of lazy to implement because the marketing's been going so good. (laughs) 
And then we've added some sales, but people go through a journey and we have very specific types of content that we want people to receive. And I don't want to say it's perfect. It started out with just like a basic drip campaign of 10 emails and and a podcast and no connection. We didn't know who was listening to the podcast versus who was reading an article versus. Right. And, and it's just gotten better over trial and error and a slug fest of like effort. And, and so inside of our Salesforce, you know, org where we do all the planning, our leads also live there too. And we also do all the marketing. So we're on one unified platform for sales and marketing and service. And that really helps us scale without as much confusion. So Salesforce is, is everything from prospecting and marketing to sales to existing clients, but you're using Marketo, I guess, as an, an overlay integrated with Salesforce to do the lead scoring and the, and the, and the marketing tracking. The marketing automation. Yeah. I mean, Marketo is like, you know, it's a, it's an enterprise level solution that's pretty sophisticated and it, everything from social media to video, to podcast, to your website tracking, to retargeting, like its job is to really build a picture of a lead that's robust, but it's like kind of like Salesforce and it takes a ton of configuration. It just took one conference for me to go like, oh, I'm never going to be this person. So you went and found Jeff. Yeah, I went and, and found Jeff. Jeff. I'm like, dude, how much is it going to take? Like we had to settle on, you know, the right valuation and he had to be convinced that I was crazy enough to actually go build this as big as we've taken it and and bigger. But, you know, it, it, wor- it worked out. So... So then help us understand where it stands now. Like what's the size of the business? I guess I don't know if you look at that by AUM or, or revenue since a portion of your revenue is not AUM based anyways or, or number of clients. Like what does Dentist Advisors look like today? I look at it by number of new customers. It's kind of like that's how because I'm happy to like look at it however people want to be looked at it. By an, from an AUM standard, we're not that big of a firm. I mean, we're a 200 to $250 million firm over the next, you know, quarter, depending on how things move. In terms of AUM, we're just not, we're not as big as, as some, but in terms of revenues, we're probably like maybe two and a half times or three times more revenue than what our AUM might suggest about us. Right. And so, so, so some of that is because you've got clients that are on $200 a month plans, but no, no material AUM yet. And you've got just Clients that are paying a healthy planning fee plus an AUM fee, so revenue wise, your your revenue per client numbers are a lot higher than other firms. Yes, yeah, and and I would say most of our clients are not at the two hundred a month; they're more at the five hundred a month level because we didn't have the two hundred a month service model until six months ago. So we weren't targeting associate dentists that worked for the practice owner until just recently, and so most of our customers are the practice owner, and they had a had a slightly higher fee schedule. So yeah, that most of our half of our revenues, a little more, I'd say a little more than half are coming from planning fees. It'll probably stay that way, but probably for it's hard to tell. Depends on what type of growth we experience. If we keep experiencing more practice owner growth, then we'll probably see more of our revenues go towards AUM. If we keep seeing younger demographics being the place that we have more success, then more of our revenues will go to planning fees, but eventually get replaced by AUM fees that we generate. There's about, I think there's 30 total, I have to go count now, 30 total people. Unlike a lot of firms, those people are not 
all financial advisors. So, you know, Matt and Cody and Will and Abby and Ryan are probably, I'd say like two thirds of our team is like advisors, but we also have a total of one, two, three, four, five, five full-time developers. So we have our CTO, David Weiss, who's a mobile iOS engineer. Then we have Todd Reynolds, our UX designer. Then we have three other full-time developers. So five full-time developers are a big portion of our overhead. Is that like building how you use Salesforce and plugging it into Marketo and such? Is that building the reports that you generate? Is that a whole separate client technology you're building in addition to e-money? For about a year and a half now, we've built just another technology solution that is in beta that we, we, we hope will help just supplement the work that we're doing right now with all the other platforms. It'll be something that just helps us handle more clients and grow a little bit better. So and is that primarily about like the client portal and client interaction yeah. or? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's where we feel like the opportunity to innovate lies. And so then we have, you know, I have the chief marketing officer and Jeff, he's overall marketing, but in our marketing team, we have Barbie. My wife does all of my copy editing. She's the only person that can make sense of my really crappy first drafts. And she works a lot. She works not quite full time, but she works a lot of hours depending on the week, depending on how wild our kid life is, because we have four kids that are still in pretty busy time of life as well. So she helps me a ton and is probably like the main way that I get my copy dialed in. Like she's like, you don't mean this, you mean this. So she does that. Then I have a full-time copywriter, Tad Henderson, doing a lot of our podcast transcriptions, but also our articles. We publish in a lot of trade publications and dental magazines and stuff like that. And then we have Tyson Lyons, who's doing all of our social and paid social promotion work. Then Jason Ball. I'm just looking at our website right now. There's like seven people that aren't even on our website. (laughs) We need to get our website populated. So hopefully by the time we release this, some of these names will have pictures up on our website. But the last six months have been a pretty big... We've added a few of these people, but Jason is our creative director. He was just hired a few months ago, and he his jo- job is to like start to dial in a lot of our a lot of our marketing messaging to some a set of stories that really make sense to our audience. We're probably done from a marketing position. Like we couldn't, the firm's big enough from a marketing perspective to where we're just dentist advisors, and that is all we're trying to do. But like we got to get more financial advisors around the country to join up with us and be our dental specific person in their city. But our marketing department probably won't grow like any more than it is. Because you've got a national reach podcast. So for all the clients that want a local advisor, you need advisors in local in local cities. Yeah. Well, we'll always run the operations out of our Salt Lake office, but we need someone doing sales. Like someone's got to go to do events. At, someone's got to be at the dental school. Someone has to like go and be the face of the company because you just, you can't, you can only do so much with marketing. We have two sales people. We have Kyle Spencer, who's an MBA that I've known for a while, and he's just done an excellent job in helping me with sales strategy and business development and partnerships and events. And And then we've got Jimmy Murphy, who's doing sales uh, outreach. He's We call him a personal financial education manager. He's a CFP, and he's just he ran his own fee-only shop, no AUM base for him at, for a long time and did it admirably well. He was at LearnVest and Vanguard and He's been through a lot of cool journeys, but his job is just to teach people. His full-time job is just teach leads things until they want to work with us, you know? And how many, how many clients is it that this team serves overall? 
To be honest, I would have to go ask Justin. I know it's it's got to be between 350 and 400. I heard him say 300 and something the other day. That's kind of where we're at. So in terms of like client count, like we're way overstaffed for the number of clients that we got. I mean, it's like, geez, you got 30 people serving 400 clients. Like what are you guys doing? You know, like that seems like kind of insane. So talk to us a little bit about the the economics of that, because I know you, you've you had some activity of actually raising capital to help fund like a chief marketing officer and chief technology officer and multiple developers, which is not something most advisory firms have. Yeah. And we, a lot of these people are younger, right? Robbie Demochke is from, he's a, he's a CFA. I think he's a level two now, but he doesn't have a CFA yet, right? But he's a brilliant young investment operations and, you know, manager, but, you know, we, we were able to get people at the early part of their career where they're still growing. Kay Robison too. I want to just mention her because she's like, Kay is like my, I do have like a personal, like a lot of personal assistant needs, but also, you know, an office manager that handles all of our admin. She's done great. The economics, the way this works really is we're not losing like a lot of money right now. I would say, you know, it's, in the low six figures per quarter. So if you want to say like, how can a firm lose a hundred grand in a quarter and still like grow? And it's because, you know, we're adding that much recurring revenue per quarter or, you know, sometimes maybe a lot more than that on a monthly basis, you know, we could add 20 clients or 30 clients, you know, and they're that much per month, you know, you might have, you know, you might add $200,000 in recurring revenue over a pretty short period of time. And is that your life right now? Like adding 20 or 30 clients in a month is is what happens from the, the podcast, the marketing funnels that you built? Yeah, that, that wouldn't be like surprising to us to have that happen. But during COVID, like things like slowed down quite a bit, as you might imagine, like it's been, and it was brutal. I mean, the entire dental industry was just like shut down and the also making withdrawals. And it was a super scary time. And our team like banded together and we're all like, you know, if we need to take pay cuts, if we need to, I mean, we all, all the executive team, we just slashed our salaries and didn't let go of anybody. And we just tried to get our overhead in check. And luckily we didn't, you know, we were able to go and pay everybody back and it didn't really require us to take as big of a risk as we were thinking we might have to take, you know, but you know, it was scary there for a little bit where you have all these clients that you're, my pitch to investors was never, there might be a point in time where all customers in this great niche we've targeted are shut down and can't work and don't pay and want to withdraw all their money. Right. <laughs> it was like a scary moment, but it's like worked out. So, But talk to us about what it, what it looks like just getting capital so that you can run a firm that operates at a current loss because it's growing quickly and, and, and making back its economics. Yeah. So like when I started, you know, when it's just me and let's say it's me and Justin, Ryan, Kay, Jacob, there's five or six people there and no developers, no marketing team, no nothing. Just we're, you know, we're doing a a million dollars in recurring revenue. I'm making a good living. Ryan's making a good living. Everyone's making a good living. The economics of that firm are great. I got to a point where I'm pretty early on in our growth, I kind of decided that either I was going to keep going like this and I'd be capped at at a pretty short period of time and I would need to just keep raising fees. And I started doing that 
and kind of saw how that was like eliminating a lot of people from getting help. And I was like, well, I used to be the guy that was making 30 grand, just died to get five minutes of consulting help from somebody, you know, I was the undergrad in music that was teaching piano lessons, you know, hoping that I could make 60 grand one day. I was hoping that I would be able to, you know, make a decent living. And I kind of started feeling like, do I really want to be building something that all that it does is every time I like want to make more money, I just say, sorry, I'm expensive now. And I cut off half of my, you know, the bottom 20% of my clients, raise my fees and just have a more cush lifestyle and take half the year off? Or do I like want to like keep building something? And I guess coming from where I was, I'm not trying to be critical of people who do that, but I guess I am, you know, at some level, I'm like, we all have some responsibility, like to at least help, you know, try to improve the industry and try to move things in a positive direction. I know that you've done that. I've seen your career, Michael, you spent a lot of time do a labor of love. You know, this isn't mm-hmm. like, there are a lot of ways to make money. And yes, I've, I've not, I've not, tried to financially optimize growth yeah. or we we wouldn't yeah. give away everything for free. <laughs> and so it's, and anyway, I, I feel like what I did at that time was just kind of see like, I've got this great process. We've got this niche market that's moving in the right direction. We've made a commitment to this vertical. Maybe I'll just like, you know, start hiring people, right? I'll just cut my income from where I was, which was, you know, I'm, I'm running a, a high operating margin, you know, like advisors do when they're that size, a million in recurring with, with really not a lot of overhead, you know, a small team and it's basically you and clients. I'm like, what if I just like started cutting my income down? And what if I just made like, you know, 200 and, you know, I cut my income, you know, by cut it in half or even more. Right. And I hired a couple of people. I'm like, what would that do? And so I was like, I'll try it. I don't know. I mean, I'm just paying a bunch of taxes anyway. So like, why don't I just like, instead of paying taxes, this is me like, no, you know, I, I, at this time I I was just starting a master's degree in finance. I had my CFP and I had, I thought I was a capable financial advisor, but I didn't know anything at this point in my career about like raising capital. It was just like an intuition of like, if I only get to keep half of it anyways, like let's, let's put some money back into it and see what happens. Let's see what happens. Like I only, I mean, I don't need all of this. And so, you know, I told my wife, I'm like, look, if, if we can just like not buy the big house, like for a while, she's like, what's a while? I'm like, oh, I'm like five years. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, that'd be too long. I'm like, I, I think if I just, if we could keep living in this like dive of a house, which is we were living in a house in a suburb of Salt Lake called Holiday. And it's like a pretty old city. And it's like, there's some old houses there. And ours was like pretty old and it was beat up and gnarly. And I wrote an article about this on our website. If you ever want to read it, it's, it's one that might make you smile. And it just talks about, you can either have a, a nice house or you could have a great practice. <laughs> and so you can, you can just kind of just see like one perspective on it. It says major dilemma, buy a house or grow a practice. Okay. Well, uh, we'll put a link out to it. All right. I told her, I just said, look, if we wait a little bit and if I just take my income down, I think like we could get to the point where the business might be able to grow independent of me. At this time, I was just slammed, right? Meeting with clients all the time and it was really busy. So I, I started to search for what I thought was, you know, a manager, like the white horse manager that would come in and just swoop in and that would be the only person I'd ever need to hire. I had a, a shrink, a coach, Peter Shillard, a guy from New York that's a friend of mine. He was telling me, he's like, dude, you're always like talking about this white horse MBA, like you're going to hire. And, and and it was like, you know, it was a conversation for six months. And he's like, I don't think that guy exists. And I'm like, I think he does. And I'm going to find him. And 
he's like, well, just don't get too upset when it's not like the white horse guy. It's like, he's going to be an NBA, but like, he might not come here and save you from all of this stuff. It's going to be just a little bit of help. And in my mind, I had like built this idea up that there's got to be like, that's where you, you go to MBA school. Like you get out, like, you know how to do all of this business stuff, right? You're going to be able to like save me. And I found who turned out to be my white horse MBA, you know, his name's Justin Copier. He was like my fifth hire and I cut my income by quite a bit to be able to afford to hire him. And he had been working at Nestle as a, a brand manager, product manager, operations kind of focused person that had a strong background in business, but he was just like the nicest person. And he had a strong writing background. He's a comedian, just felt like the kind of like cultural fit that I wanted. So we went for it. And as soon as that happened, everything started to change. You know, like I didn't view myself anymore like as the financial planner. I viewed myself as like, I've got to make this thing like live and breathe and help provide jobs for people. And like, I wanted this firm to like work. I don't want to get paid more. I just want to see this thing work. I think that's kind of what it takes to, in order to, you know, for most small businesses, like there's so many small businesses that have such great service and great ideas, but you know, it's scary sometimes as a founder to think about taking your income backwards. You don't want to go from 200 to 100 or from three to two or from four to two or heaven forbid you go from you know, a high six figure income or even a seven figure income to cut it in half. You know, it's like, that would be crazy. And, and I see this happening with dentists and orthodontists and all of our niche. They don't want to take a step backwards to take two forward. And I was like, whoa, this is working. Like if I do a podcast and I do this, then we get this to happen. And if I follow all these things that I, I think are, you know, going to work. And if I test them, it keeps growing. I got to this point where it was like, I'm growing faster than what I can afford to pay. Like I don't have money yet. It's the it's the challenge of growing on on recurring revenue, like whether it's monthly fees or or AUM compared to the old commission model. Like we talk about this a lot on the on the podcast. It used to be like I get a hundred thousand dollar client, I sell them an A share, I get like four or five thousand dollars in my bank account in a week or two. Yeah. Now it's I get a hundred thousand dollar client, and it's like three months from now I'll get a two hundred and fifty dollar check. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> so like you can you can grow broke with a completely successful long-term business that runs out of money before the long-term gets there. Yeah. And I was like, I started just like, I guess making, in my mind, it just started becoming the first time where I was like, why is this so painful? The asset is getting bigger. I'm just having to work more and more. And I'm asking people to work more and more because like we have to wait for seven months to be able to afford the next hire or how am I going to be able to afford a marketing person? I need 17 new clients to get a new associate planner. It's like, that seems so arbitrary. Like, why do I have to, why do I have to do it this way? Like, isn't there a better way? I would just like rather like sell someone a piece of my company. So I don't own it all at the time. I mean, it sounds crazy. Okay. Like you would, you might, you'll appreciate this. Like I'm a guy from Idaho, grew up in Rupert, Idaho on a farm. My dad's the president of the Idaho potato commission. I'm like a honest kind of like hardworking farm kid, right? And I didn't go to school to be a financial planner. I went to school to be a musician. And Northwestern Mutual convinced me to do an internship when I was struggling to make money playing the piano. And I fell in love with financial planning. And then I got my CFP. And then I did a master's degree in finance. And then I spent like a lot of my adult income doing executive education at Wharton and you know, flying to, you know, San Francisco and to Pennsylvania and just like learning business in a way that I I'm like fascinated by entrepreneurship and software and technology. And 
but I didn't, I wasn't that person. Like when I was experiencing the growth of my company at the beginning, I was barely taking my first venture capital class in my master's degree. And I went to my class in my venture capital class and I was like, okay, so this is what people do when they're in my situation. And I was like, I didn't even know. I was just like, are you serious? Like, there's a whole freaking industry around this? I'm like, I, I was just like blown away. I'm like, because it, do, it doesn't exist in our advisor world. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I thought there was like an SBA loan or something. You know, like, it was crazy. Dude, within like a month, I was like fundraising, right? I'm just like, I'm putting a pitch deck together because I know I can pull this off. I just got to go find some people to do it. So I'm like, I built my business plan. I start like getting my pitch deck together and I'm like, okay, like, let me go talk to some like senior, like some VCs. Like I've got, I get some connections. I went and met with my first one. They're like, totally like, we're going to fund you, give you a million bucks on a $3 million valuation and we'll own a third of your company. And I was like, like, okay, okay, cool. I get the money. Let's do this. You know? And I was like, I, I spent a couple of days thinking about it. I'm like, I don't know about that. I'm like, that seems like a lot, you know, like I'm growing pretty fast right now. It was my first pitch that I had had, you know, the first pitch I got introduced to. They're like, done. Here you go. Term sheet. But I didn't sign it. I like spent, you know, a couple of weeks going back to class and reading a bunch of books. I read, there's a book that I love called uh, Venture Deals. I just started seeing the economics a little better. And I started having to come to a reality check on what I really believed my business was worth. Like I had to believe it, right? It, I, it wasn't worth just $3 million to me. At the time, like that was the industry standard, right? I'm doing a million recurring. $3 million was like on the high end of what this VC was offering me, right? They're like, we'll give you $3 million bucks on a $1 million recurring business. Like that is the top end of your industry. I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like I'm not building that though. I'm building this other thing that feels a little different. The average firm in my industry is growing at like, you know, mid to high single digits. Like I'm, I'm trying to grow more than 8% a year. Yeah. Like last year I grew up 47%. Like, doesn't that mean anything? You know, and, and I, I went to a few different classes. I attended one called Growth and Scale at Wharton years after I had raised my first round and finally understood really in depth what I was feeling. This is after I raised my first round, but the economics of, you know, how your growth rate and how your cash flow and how the cost of a customer really like play into your valuation. And it was interesting because I was able to like retroactively look back at what I finally felt like my, what, what I really understood my company to be worth in the future. I looked back and what I raised capital at the valuation I, I raised that was actually pretty fair. And it was closer to, uh, I think the pre-money valuation was closer to seven seven and change. And that felt at the time, like fair to me, like I was willing to part with my stock at that rate, right at that first round, which was, you know, several years ago from today. And was that raising a million dollars? Like, is that what you went out for as cash? I raised more than that. I think it was closer to three. I'd have to go get my term sheets out to look at where exactly at, but it was close to that. And it was close to a seven. So a post money of 10 approximately. I took some liquidity out and that was probably part of what a traditional VC wouldn't want to have happen. Like I was like, I don't, I'm starving here and I'm not taking hardly anything home. Like I need a little bit of Skrilla. Meaning of the 3 million that went in, like not all 3 million went into that, into the business itself. A portion of that went into your pocket. It's essentially just a sale of a portion of your shares for you and then a sale of a portion of the shares for the business. Exactly. My, my wife and me were just like, 
okay, she's like, you've been building this for a long time now. The five years is starting to kind of creep up or it actually had been like three and a half. And I was just like, yeah, you know, like, I don't know if I want to be own it all. Like maybe I'll get enough to at least remodel our old house, you know? So anyway, I remodeled our house. It's beautiful and we're really happy and life's good. And I've still got a comfortable salary and the business has, you know, enough money to start like toying around a little bit with like testing something, (laughs) you know, like not like a ton. Like at the time I felt like I was absolutely loaded for your first capital injection into a business. You see seven figures in an account when you're used <laughs> to like living on 10 grand. You're just like, dude, let's go have a party. Like we need to do this like the right way. We're going to find the right people really quickly though. When you like you, you, I never had been through those emotions. I've seen now founders waste all of their money, you know, on frivolous, like, efforts because you know that happens a lot when well not not having much money is a very good filter if you actually get a bunch of cash in because you raise capital you have to be really careful not to just go go hog wild and how you spend it yeah and a lot of people do that they'll have you know big you know festivals and branding exercises nothing substantive that like drives the business you know but what i tried to do with that capital is say like what main gaps am i missing to grow my business and i felt like the gaps were largely digital marketing related and they were technology related and so i went and found david weiss who's become one of my best friends at this point and you know jeff morgan equally so and justin and jeff and david helped me and Ryan and Kay and Jacob finally, you know, start moving the needle in in a positive direction. And, you know, that David was uh, the first kind of technology hire that I made. And and between me and Justin and Jeff and David, now you have a kind of a C-suite that I learned was a thing in in my uh, finance masters. You know, you have your CEO, me, you had a chief marketing officer, chief technology officer, and you have a chief operations officer. At this point, we're quite top heavy, right? We've got these expensive kind of like big hires, which you kind of need. And, you know, different people approach this differently. But my strategy was get the really best top talent. And then let's just like all overwork a little bit. Instead of hiring like four or five people that were maybe like not as experienced, let's hire a nice C-suite. Let's get a few. The investors that we ended up approaching were also non-traditional. I didn't end up raising from a traditional venture capital firm. I um, raised from six people that were really wealthy individuals. I ended up actually with eight at the end. So eight wealthy people that all injected the same amount of money. I just had the exact same ownership go to each person. And that was our first round. The C-suite plus a few other hires was basically what got us through our first several years of growth and we grew into a valuation that supported, you know, where we raised money at and exceeded that valuation. You know, so the original investors capital was deployed, we grew and we were able to, you know, demonstrate to our first investors that through our work and strategy, the business was now uh, giving them a nice return. And now we needed to do this again. (laughs) And so and then you so, went back to the well. Yeah, so back to the well. And, you know, a, a lot. some of them contributed and exercised their right to participate in the upcoming round. And But we did have to go get um, some more people in order to fund our next round of growth. And it was a bigger round the second time around than the first time. Not like dramatically more, but, you know, a few million more than the first time. 
And so that is where that happened uh, earlier this year in January. Now we've got a runway plus a lot, you know, a, a pretty good stable growth rate that we are comfortable with. And we raised that evaluation that we felt was reasonable. Again, I own less than half of the firm at this point, but still the largest individual shareholder. But my C-suite all has equity. My team has equity. My advisors have equity. And um, obviously our investors and some board advisors have equity that are really critical parts of what we're trying to do. So I do have to ask, you mentioned there, like you own less than half the equity at this point. So for a lot of people, like that is a magic line. Like the investors could all get together and fire you now, Reese. How do you think about the crossing that threshold to having less than 50% of the thing that you created? My desire to like do the right thing for clients and build the right thing, like far exceeds my personal desire for wealth. It's just kind of a deep life mission of mine to like leave the financial planning industry in a more positive place. Practically speaking, it just wouldn't be possible to do and maintain control of the business. I wouldn't be able to retain the talent that I want, and I definitely wouldn't have the resources I have now or the chance to build technology that I think is going to just change the landscape of the industry. I just want to be a part of the solution. And so for me, it was hard. It was really hard. The hardest thing, though, was the first round. The hardest thing was giving up equity to begin with because I had spent the first eight, nine, 10 years of my career owning the whole business and bootstrapping everything. The idea of having losing control was the scariest, just the scariest thing you could, I could imagine. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to lose control, but now I, I don't feel like I've lost control. I just feel like I've gotten a lot more friends and I have like a lot better support network and I've got a small piece of a much bigger pie and I trust the people that own the pie with me. If I'm the best person to run the company, they'll keep me in place. If I'm not, then I want the best person to be in place to run the company. It's a, it's a different place to get to, you know, but it it's kind of the the journey that I went on. I don't know that everyone can do that and and you know that's okay. I just feel like some people have to do it or nothing changes, you know what I mean? So what surprised you the most of building your own advisory business? Probably like how much my team ended up meaning to me when I got done. I just care a lot about all these people that are like willing to, you know, sacrifice their, their careers to build this with me. It's pretty humbling, you know, to like look at that and, and, and investors that are willing to like take a risk. It's pretty, it's a humbling you know, moment. And for me, that's the thing I value most is like, we have a really strong vision and mission and like everyone from dev to, to marketing, to sales, they're like committed to like trying to improve things the way we want to. And that wasn't something I really thought would be the most rewarding thing for me, but man, it, it's, it trumps everything. Like I would do it in a heartbeat just to get the team constructed that we have right now. It's a, it's an amazing feeling to see like how, people that are wanting to do something really impactful, like it's, it's just cool to watch and just be a smaller part of, you know, I just don't feel like I could do it without them. And that's, that's been a cool experience. So what was the low point for you? Low point was probably, probably like 08, 09, you know, like I started my firm in 07 and I borrowed 
50 grand from the SBA. Then I got another line of credit. I started the business with a partner day one. So, so debt and only 50% of the profits. <laughs> yep. And I ended up racking up probably a hundred plus thousand in credit card bills because of 08 and 09 and over committing to fixed costs before we even had any revenue. Like it was, that was like a low point, you know, and my, the, my original partners still maintain, we still are good friends. Like it just, I don't, it wouldn't have been possible for us to both move forward at that point. Like there's just one, one of us had to, we both were just going to like start our own firms and, or we're going to, you know, have to go under. And I ended up kind of like keeping the brand and keeping all the debt and kind of going forward with it. And he's been really successful in his career, you know, and just kind of gone a different direction, but stayed in the industry anyway. But that was like pretty low point for me and probably for him too. Yeah. I, I would think like a hundred thousand dollars of credit card debt on, on the business would not be a good point for most. It was just like, this just felt stupid. You just felt dumb. You know, like, what am I doing? I can't give people advice. Who am I? You know, like I'm, I'm a fraud. You're like, I don't, I'm not really a real advisor, you know? And the truth is just like all circumstantial. It's like, well, a dentist doesn't feel that way when he goes and borrows, you know, $700,000 to get through dental school, you know, but as a financial advisor, there is no education. There is no career track for getting you ready. There's no financing. There's no, you know, lending market for starting up firms. That's just, we're, we're an industry that started in 1970 and you know, the, dental industry started in freaking Mesopotamia, you know? <laughs> so like we, we are young, our industry's young and we just shouldn't feel bad about how hard it is to get a firm off the ground. But at the time I felt, you know, really bad. Was there something that turned it around for you? Just growth. You know, I grew every year I've ever been open. And when the financials of the business were me and the debt, as opposed to me and a partner in the debt, it was a little bit easier to keep growing, you know? And, and so it was great. So anyway, I, I feel like that was meaningful and it's just meaningful to like make a difference. Clients were just stoked about the service. They were happy about the results and that was a big deal. So what comes next for you? You know, I think I want to build a nationwide network of financial advisors that work with dentists that specialize in the dental market that like want to own that vertical. I want to give them, opportunity and upside and give them support and resources. And we're, you know, we've got a lot of great interviews. I had like, you know, 11 different financial planners I interviewed this week. And that's exciting to see, you know, we're continuing to like try to educate our advisors more. Like I was saying earlier, the dentistadvisors.com slash advisor podcast, we're launching like an advisor podcast for people that you know, we employ right now to sort of like get them up to speed on the industry faster and make sure that they're up and running. You know, I'm happy to like let other people listen to that because it's going to involve our journey as well. I'm going to try to make that be public. And just because I, I think what I, what we've learned, like it would be a shame not to just like share some of it. I'm sure it'll come back and, you know, I hope I don't get made fun of too much by like being too public with everything, but I really have kind of always been a pretty transparent person. And I kind of want to just make sure that we whatever lessons people can learn from what I've gone through, I'd love for them to have a chance to learn that. So we'll probably, um, we've got a few first few episodes recorded already. I haven't like figured out the name of it 
yet. I think we're going to call it like Dennis, the dental something or elements something, or I don't know, just to train our internal team. If you ever come up with a name, Michael, I'd really appreciate you just telling me what to name it. Oh, I'll brainstorm on that. I'll brainstorm (laughs) on that. So that's next, I think, is I want to get maybe 30, you know, more advisors in key markets, you know, get somebody in, you know, Raleigh and Charleston and get somebody in Tampa and get somebody in Boston and and have them like execute what we've done in the other markets and and just keep trying to help more people. And then hopefully like just be a positive influence for other firms to like learn from and grow. I think our team right now, we're pretty big size. We've got a ways to grow. We don't really need more infrastructure employees. We've kind of built like a small broker dealer team, you know? So yeah, we're, we're ready to support our own internal advisors at least. And excited about that. Well, and, and if folks are interested in you, we'll have a link out to the advisor podcast to be named and, and just the, the firm, the career page itself, you know, folks are listening to this and thinking like, I, I want to be involved in something like this. You know, to me, this is the cool thing about just the way that the industry is growing, involving. There's a portion of folks who listen to this who are, I'll call like on the independent side, like want to be their own boss and run their own business and build their own thing and more power to them. And then there's a lot of folks that are are not like they would rather be in a firm that just has some of this stuff figured out. They just want to be a financial planner and do financial planning stuff for their clients and not have to worry about the rest. And that to me is the cool thing about firms like yours that are getting built is just we're, we're creating those opportunities on both ends and to each their own about whatever scratches the itch for them and their, their career and personal growth. Yeah. And I think for us, like the, the first few advisors that we've brought on, they had their own in, independent firms. They ran them for 10 years, you know, and, or multiple years, right? I should say like there's some advisors that we are about to work with that have been in their own firm for 10 or more years. Some that we've brought on were less than that. We really feel like some independent advisors, they bring like the right experience that is needed. But sometimes it's just like really hard to like build the infrastructure. I don't know if I could have done it without capital, you know, like not the way, not in the quality that we're doing it and not without picking a market. And so, well, and it's pretty striking just for any advisors who are listening, like truly just go to Reese's website and click around on just the services and the pricing and what they call their education library of, of, of content. And just, you know, for the people who maybe get inspired by this, like, this is what you do when you raise capital. Like the bad news, you don't own all your business. The good news, like you can build a lot of cool stuff relatively quickly that we just can't do when we cash flow our business to say, well, you know, I, I earned enough in profits and I've still got to pay my household bills, but we've got a little bit of money we can reinvest in the business for growth. Like we talk about reinvestments in the business as I think as advisors and business owners, like, hey, I hired another staff person, but you know, what you're executing and and to me really what shows on the website and the platform of, of what you built is this just exists at a whole other level when you talk about raising a million plus dollars and deploying it to hire a bunch of very senior experienced people. Yeah. Well, thanks, Michael. I, I, I mean, it just means a lot coming from you. You've got an amazing, you know, mind for that stuff and built an awesome site as well with yeah, but ours isn't nearly as pretty as yours. I just if if your if your CMO is ever not happy, please have him please have him call me because we need we need a facelift for ours to look like yours. Uh, he'll now. he'll appreciate that. So. I'm having marketing envy. Yeah, well, thanks. I I feel like the that that's our, our next stage of like what we're trying to do, and you know we'll we'll just be 
here to try to like find, we're trying to find the right cultural fit and people with some experience, you know, it's, there's, there's probably 500 advisors around the U S that work with dentists at some level. We feel like they can still have a lot of upside and a lot of opportunity. We're not trying to just put people on fixed salaries that never change. You know, it's, it's a, it's like a, a more like upside driven model to preserve like some of that independent spirit, but then also like just not hassle with some of the stuff. Like we should all be sharing infrastructure more than we do. Like we're just duplicating processes way too much. So as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success. And and one of the themes is always that the word success means, means different things, to different people. So you're, you're building this successful business on an incredible trajectory for growth and what, and what the firm is delivering. But I, I'm wondering how you define success for yourself at this point. Success for me at this point is really just the volume of people that I'm impacting, the touches, the relationships. It's just the number of people that can make the world better because they've come in contact with me. You know, I want to just be an influence for people that is positive, that makes them feel good about their lives, that makes them feel they're like accomplishing something meaningful. To me, that's like what impact's all about. You know, that's what success is. Like I, I was looking this morning at you know, TikTok valuation. You know, there's a story. Um, one of the Disney executives was moved over to help grow TikTok. And uh, it's a social media app for those of you who don't know. And then I was looking at Delta's valuation. <laughs> I'm just like, man, like sometimes in the world, like impact isn't always rewarded with the most money. Like the most impact isn't always, you know, rewarded with the most money. When I look at your blog and I look at all the content you've created and how much literacy like you've brought to the financial planning community, it's tough to put a price on that, you know, like even if you don't get paid, it's like you've moved the needle in a significant way globally for financial advisors. And I'll take 50% pay cut if that's what it takes, you know. But luckily in my case, I think it's been a little bit of both. I've had more financial success than I ever thought I would have, you know, both through profitable business that has kicked off cash and provided me with a good life, comfortable living and liquidity events along the way. But I, I really feel like I, I, I'm, I'm really trying to have an impact right now. And I think that's the thing that I hope everyone can like at least find some corner of their life where that, that is giving them meaning because that's what gives me the most meaning right now. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm I'm just I'm really excited to see where you guys build, where you guys go from here. We uh I may have to call you back on the podcast another three years and find out where where it's grown to and where the path's taking you then. Oh, thanks, Michael. It's been a pleasure and just grateful for all that you're doing. If uh we have any advisors that we're resonating with out there, I'd love them to just again check out the that podcast I'll be putting on my site at Dennis Advisors slash advisor podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll put a link out to it in the, in the show notes as well. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate your time. And thanks again for having me on and sharing all your time that you do. I hope you have a great weekend. It's been awesome. Likewise. Thank you. 
Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.